WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. We've spoken about different bacteria in the past like Salmonella and Listeria and so much more. Today we're here talking to Andrew Carney about his research on Salmonella with sugar. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. May you please tell us more about your research? Yeah, thanks for having me. We wanted to quantify how much salmonella could survive in sugar because there's a critical literature gap in that area within food safety. What we did is that we stored salmonella for over three years because sugar has a shelf life super long, upwards of six years sometimes with granulated sugar when stored at the correct conditions. Brown sugar as well can even have up to 18 months, shelf life meaning how long before it goes bad. And so we wanted to see if sugar could survive in these products for the entirety of the shelf life or as close as we could get with the the time we had. Nice to meet you, Andrew, and thanks for joining us this morning. When you say how long sugar can last, what are you exactly talking about? Are you referring to the chemical structure of sugar or is there some other kind of parameter that you use to describe this? So what we're talking about is microbiology. What we're trying to do is we're putting salmonella in these sugar samples directly because we're we're trying to kill salmonella. You don't want salmonella in your food because it'll get you sick. So we're going to basically the study was storing these sugar samples at four different temperatures and seeing how long they can survive at these storage temperatures without dying. These sugar samples that you have, are they fresh or have they been stored in your lab for over a year? And also, whenever you add the salmonella to the sugar, what happens after that? What we did is we obtained sugar from a supplier in Michigan. And so as soon as it got to the lab, we used it right away. Negligible time stored otherwise in our lab for the study. Once we infect the sugar with salmonella using the methods we use in the lab, what we'll do is we just, we have a freezer, a heater, and then we just have a secure area in the lab where we can put samples at room temperature. So our three storage temperatures were refrigeration, room temperature, and a heated area. It's good that you investigated the salmonella at these different temperatures so that you could look at it and make this research more accessible to people that live in different regions of the world. Right. To chime in there, with the upper echelon of temperatures, when sugar is stored in processed facilities, it's not uniform what temperature it's stored at usually. There's a recommended storage conditions that most processed facilities try to follow, but you can't watch every single processed facility. So think of like a process facility in like Arizona or Texas or, you know, Southern India. Those places can get really hot if they don't have uh, central cooling. So that's why we chose a higher temperature in the study. Personally, I can't relate since I come from South Florida and central AC is a thing there. So we can't live without that. Regarding the actual summit colonies that you're working with, how did you quantify what was the correct amount of salmonella to introduce into your sugar samples? So in the study, we were shooting for six log CFU per G, which that crazy sounding unit is really just stands log as in a logarithm, like in math. So like one and then 10, 100, 1,000 up that way. And then CFU stands for colony forming unit. So when we grow salmonella, we grow it in this thing called agar media, which is just basically an environment that salmonella likes to grow in. And it has all the nutrients it likes to munch on and grow. And so when it grows, it'll grow in these little splotchy circles. And when we count it, we'll basically put um, a counter in one hand and a pen in another, and we'll count all these little circles. And one of those is a colony forming unit per gram. So we're shooting for six log CFU. 
And to add to that, when we do what we call plating in the lab, which is basically spreading our salmonella mixture from our sugar salmonella mixture onto a plate to grow it, to count it, what we'll do is we'll dilute it, which means basically we'll try to hit in like a concentration so that it won't overgrow in the plate so that we can count it. For example, if we were going to not dilute something at all that was like super, super cooked, it's not going to have a lot of salmonella, right? I mean, heat's going to kill bacteria. So if we diluted that a ton, you're not going to see anything on that plate. So that's not a very accurate measurement. Even vice versa, if you didn't dilute something that needed to be diluted, you could get an overgrown plate where the whole plate will just look black. Like you can't even tell. What, it's just all bacteria. So you can't even count it. Yeah, it makes sense. If there's too much bacteria, the whole plate will be covered with it to the point that you can't even distinguish the colonies or the circles in order to count how many are on there. And if you put too much, then your experiment will just be way too overwhelmed with it. So you have to find that happy medium. Now, I recall that you had mentioned that you're studying brown sugar and white sugar. Before we get into that, can you please explain to our audience what is the difference and maybe does that difference affect your studies? Yes. So I'd like to clarify something that I failed to mention earlier. We actually looked at four different sugar types in the study. White sugar, which is basically your run-of-the-mill sugar you'll see in a cake. Brown sugar, powdered sugar, and liquid sugar, which is basically like water sugar. And so basically the difference between all these different sugars is what you're going to get exactly from something like sugarcane or, you know, sugar beet or something, right? That comes straight from the plant. And when you process it, that's what's going to come out. When you start adding other ingredients to sugar, that's when you're going to get your different types. So for example, brown sugar, you're going to add some molasses to it. And that's what creates brown sugar. With powdered sugar, it's just finely ground white sugar. But then you also add cornstarch in so it doesn't get all stuck together. And then white sugar, you're just adding water. Or, and then liquid sugar, obviously, you're just adding water to it. So there's a difference between the sugars in the study for sure. Brown sugar died the fastest. We weren't even able to count any salmonella in the brown sugar by 400 days, which sounds like a long time. But in the grand scheme of sugar's shelf life, it, you know, it basically goes bad. So it's not all that quick. Also, liquid sugar died at a rate that was pretty similar to brown sugar. But then granulated and powdered sugar, being that they're really, really similar in chemical composition, they're basically the same thing other than that cornstarch. So they died at similar rates. The salmon within those died at uh, pretty similar rates. And so with the white and sugar as well, the salmon within those sugars survived the whole study. So 1,044 days, the salmon was still alive. That's roughly three years. The range of those survival times for the salmonella are pretty extensive. I was pretty surprised to hear about how the salmonella was able to survive for over 300 days in that powdered sugar sample that you were working with. This got me thinking about the other kinds of commodities that exist in, for example, bakeries. How do foodborne pathogens like salmonella survive in other kinds of commodities? Actually, salmonella survives better in other products than sugar commodities like flour. So both products are very, very dry, but when mixed in a wetter environment, there's chemical traits with flour that I won't get into that make it so it survives better in flour that are slightly related to how dry it is and how coarse it is. So sugar is a coarser type of material, while flour is more uh, powdery. Hence why salmonella died faster in powdered sugar than granulated sugar in the study. So you said that you've had these sugars for years storing there in the lab in different temperatures. And then after, whenever you're doing your experiments, you inoculated or you infected with salmonella. How can you be sure that your controls are not infected with salmonella? When we're doing the plating I talked about earlier, when we spread around the inoculated sugar that we've stored at different temperatures, we'll just take a scoop of sugar out uh, and we'll plate that uh, straight from where it came from. No salmonella involved. And if it grows on our control, we know we messed up, right? But if it doesn't, which it rarely does, we're good to go. 
just for clarification purposes, you have the sugar sitting in your lab and then you inoculate it or infect it. What do you consider day zero in your experiment where you have the sugar sitting there for a few years to see how the salmonella is growing? So day zero, we quantify as when we plate the sugar and store these samples into our different environments, the refrigerator, the incubator, and room temperature. And so when we do that, we'll put the zero or our controls right next to our salmonella samples, our sugar samples with salmonella in them. And so they've just sat in there for three years and we've been taking intermediate time points. We took them all the way up to 30 days and intervals of basically five days at a time. So, you know, zero, five, 10, 15, 20, and so on. And then we took them at 400 days and they took them at a thousand days. Throughout this interview, I've been thinking about the chemical structure of sugar and wondering about how the chemical itself is actually impacting the ability of the salmonella to actually survive. Have there been any investigations to try and characterize the microscopic behavior that the glucose molecules are having with the salmonella? So in the past, sugar processors have looked at these variables you're discussing. And what they concluded is that sugar has what we call high osmotic pressure and low water activity. So sugar and salmonella will be in an environment of equilibrium. So sugar won't really grow or die because it can't really get the nutrients it wants from sugar, but sugar can't enough to kill it on its own. The product itself, in, in layman terms, is working to kill the salmonella within it. All what you have been telling us is really cool. Studying sugar, though, is pretty niche. What made you want to research this particular topic? So I started working in my lab fall 2019, which was my first semester at Michigan State. And I heard that we just had these phantom sugar samples of the lab. And I was like, sheesh, how long have those been there? And they're like, you know, almost a thousand days at this point. And, and right there, just how long they'd been there. And then they told me, like, they hadn't taken another sample. They said, well, you know, around 400 days, it was still there, the salmonella and the sugar. So I was like, well, why don't we look again? And so we went and looked again and it's still there. And so then that's how we picked it up. It was kind of happens almost. They had an idea, obviously, my PI, uh, all the grad students lab, you know, we, we do want to look at this again. That's why it's still there, obviously, those samples. But that's kind of what piqued my interest when I heard about that. I was like, can I be a part of that? And so they let me and here I am. How I met my PI, Dr. Mark specifically, is kind of a funnier story. When I was thinking about colleges, I was down to Michigan State and I was down to Kettering University, which is a tiny engineering school in Flint, which is near my hometown of Flushing, Michigan. Anyone knows where that is? And basically how Kettering works is they do a co-op program. So you'll take a semester, every other semester you'll go work and you'll go back to school, so on and so forth. And my co-op I secured at the time was going to be working at Chrysler doing uh, vehicle safety, which in hindsight didn't sound super fun to me. So I had also been offered something at Michigan State called a professorial assistantship, which basically allows freshmen to get involved with a lab as soon as they get to campus, which I thought was also a great opportunity, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. My declared major at the time was biosystem engineering because I, at the Alumni Distinguished Scholarship Competition, which basically where all the prospective honors college students will tour camp. I got to take a tour of Dr. Mark's lab led by a grad student in the lab who I work closely with now, which is kind of funny. And so I switched my major to biosystems. And then when I was down to make my college decision finally, and I had that opportunity, I just emailed him and I said, Hey, like I'm having a hard time making a decision. Would you have time to make a phone call with me? And as busy as the guy is, he made an hour for some random high school kid from Flushing. And he talked to me, he told me all about his lab and what kind of future career prospects would look like. And he hooked me, and that's why I went to state, and that's why I'm in Dr. Marx's lab. Fall 2019 was quite a while ago at this point. In fact, it was before the pandemic. And that made me wonder a little bit about what your future plans were since you're entering your junior year now here at Michigan State. Are you planning on pursuing a PhD in food science afterwards, or are you interested in a professional degree like a medical school? My dream, actually, when I came to state was I was going to be pre-med, biosystems engineering major, so I had something to fall back on and be a pediatrician. 
So it's fun you mentioned that. But right now, after being involved with Dr. Marx's lab, I'm almost certain I'm going to go to grad school, whether that'll be in Dr. Marx's lab or at some other university. That's still up in the air. I'd love to come back, but you know, figure that out in the coming years I have here. And I think I do want to, at this time, pursue a PhD. But I don't know after I get my PhD whether I'd work in industry or whether I'd work in an academic setting. You know, I'd love to do research all day like Dr. Marx does. But, you know, it's, it's a competitive field. And I actually did an internship this past summer, or it was a co-op eight months along at Nestle Gerber. So baby food is pretty fun. So I, I definitely work in an industry setting, though, as well, because I also enjoyed that. So that's also up in the air. It's great that you got that experience in a lab and in an industry setting. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew. It was really good talking to you about your research. Thanks for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.